the notion that Trump flew around in a public jet or had this gold-gilded penthouse in New York. These were not problematic ideas for a follower of the prosperity gospel. That was evidence of God's favor on him and that his wealth is not evidence of grift or fraud, but evidence of a reward from God. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. My guest today is Sarah Posner, a journalist who has been covering the religious right for decades. Her most recent book, Unholy, explores how race and xenophobia have long been at the core of evangelical Christianity in America. In an op-ed earlier this week, she appealed to President Biden to call out the Republican Party for harboring and empowering white supremacists. We're going to talk about all that today. Sarah, welcome to Burn the Boats. Thanks for having me. In that op-ed for MSNBC, you wrote, it is not enough for Biden to talk about white supremacist violence. As he hits the campaign trail in earnest, Biden needs to be far more pointed in calling out how the Republican Party props up and even promotes white supremacists who threaten our democracy from within. A conventional political strategy in the run-up to an election would be to maintain as many bridges as possible to potential swing voters in the Republican Party. But it it feels to me like the subtext of your op-ed is that we're beyond conventional politics and that facing a Republican Party that espouses white supremacy, uh, we need to speak plainly about that threat, the party itself, even if it means burning bridges. Is that fair? Yes, that's absolutely correct. Biden had given a speech over the weekend before I wrote that column at Howard University. It was a commencement speech, so it wasn't a you know campaign speech per se. And he called out white supremacist violence basically as domestic terrorism and said that it was the greatest domestic terrorist threat to the country right now, which is true. But the way he spoke about it made it seem disconnected from Republican or conservative movement politics, that it was just this thing that had come out of the shadows spontaneously. And, you know, in the post-Trump, post-first-term Trump era, uh, where Trump brought all of these white supremacists out from the fringes, out of the shadows, and emboldened them and empowered them and mainstreamed them. And now the Republican Party is following Trump's lead instead of saying, no, you know, we're not the party of white supremacy. They're actually embracing it. You look at somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who talked about calling somebody a white supremacist is the equivalent of calling somebody the N-word. Or Paul Gosar, who employs a protege of the white supremacist neo-Nazi Nick Fuentes. Don't leave out Senator Tuberville, and and this is me coming at it as a vet, who said he doesn't see white nationalists in the military, he sees Americans. Exactly. And so this is an endemic problem in the Republican Party. This is not a few bad apples, because if it was just a few bad apples and the Republican Party considered that, considered it to be so, just, uh, just a few bad apples, they would get rid of the few bad apples and say, we're moving on from this. They're not doing that. They're harboring them, basically. It was the the subtitle of your book that caused me to to pick it back up. It came out in the aftermath of the the 2020 election when a lot of us and I include myself in this breathed a huge sigh of relief and we thought the forces of of democracy and decency had overcome the forces of of brutalism and autocracy. And I think your subtitle 
reflects that sentiment. It, it, it says how the white Christian nationalists powered the Trump presidency bad and the devastating legacy they left behind. The implication being we've turned a page. I am going to assume that you've had to reassess based on the last couple of years and even the last couple of weeks. We haven't turned a page. If anything, we are setting up something even worse than the, the 2016 scenario where Trump emerged almost accidentally out of a, uh, of a busy, you know, overpopulated field of candidates. He is now uh, he is so much more powerful than he was during that primary season. So the subtitle that you read is the subtitle of the paperback version of my book, which came out after January 6th. And I am talking about that there, you know, they left the Trump, the Trump presidency left a devastating legacy behind. Not that they left it behind in the past, that they left it behind in our present politics, right? So Trump was out of office, but they left behind this devastating legacy. And, you know, the hardcover of my book came out before the 2020 election. And then after... After January 6th, when the paperback was going to press, you know, I wrote a, an afterward based following January 6th. And this was the subtitle that we used just to show that Trump is out of office, but he's left something very toxic in our politics. And we're seeing that, you know, in the primary, we're seeing it in the way that he just comports himself, even when he's not necessarily running for president. But we're also more importantly seeing it in how the Republican Party acts towards him. And I'm not just talking about the base, but I'm talking about the leadership of the Republican Party. They are not saying this man tried to kill some of us <laughs> and tried to overthrow the government. They're saying this man is going to make America great again. They're, they're sticking with him. And that tells us everything we need to know about where the Republican Party as a whole is right now, even after January 6th. That allegiance to Trump goes beyond the sentiment that he's going to make America great again. And this is where I want to get into the conversation about evangelicalism. It's a type of prophet worship. The The party uses the language of ordination, this idea that Trump was sent by God. And that's a direct reflection of the language of evangelical Protestantism, but it has overtaken the Republican Party as well. They, they just can't quit Trump. Yeah, I think that what they found is they got a taste of autocracy and they really liked it. For many years, the religious right really centered its political strategy on maximizing voter turnout. They worked very hard to get evangelical and conservative Catholic voters to the polls. They thought they could, that was their path to winning elections. That was their path to having an America that could be restored, in their view, restored to its Christian heritage by getting more Christians to the polls and getting more Christians in office. But they obviously saw in the Obama era, there had been a demographic turn in the country and that strategy wasn't working for them anymore. They lost two president, presidential elections in a row to a candidate who sort of represented th this change in America, the political change, demographic change. And that's what made them willing to embrace a candidate who did not meet their typical or their historic 
litmus test for what they wanted in a presidential candidate. They wanted somebody who was biblically literate. They wanted somebody who could talk about their own salvation story and how they were going to restore Christian America. Trump was a libertine from New York City who had been married three times and all the rest of it. And so their embrace of him was really about his pursuit of power and his willingness to use power on their behalf and run roughshod over democracy. And they were not only okay with it, they actually, you know, thought this is really great. This is how we're going to win. When you talk about using power on their behalf, it's really the exercise of power to malign and put down other parties. And that to me is the most striking thing about this restoration of Christian heritage, as you put it. It's not really about faith. It's about a reaction to the expansion of rights to other groups. And there's this passage from your book that that captures it really well. And I would love your, your thoughts on it. You say that on the surface, the Christian right is saturated with rhetoric about faith and values. Its real driving force, though, was not religion, but grievances over school desegregation, women's rights, LGBTQ rights, affirmative action, and more. Trump became their hero despite being, as you said, a thrice-married philanderer who talked about dating his daughter, paid off a porn star to keep quiet, and was terrible at God talk. He became their savior because he spoke the language that tied them and him and the grievances of the alt-right together against political correctness, civil and human rights, et cetera, et cetera. It wasn't really about faith. It was about the contest of interest groups. Right. I mean, as you point out, as I discuss in the book, now they're calling it wokeism, right? Like that became the catchword over the past couple of years. When I wrote the book, they hadn't been using that term as exclusively as they are now. That's a catchword for we don't like progress. We don't like it that secularism, feminism, LGBTQ rights, anti-racism, that these forces were changing the society that we live in, right? That's how progressives would look at it, that they don't like progress. They don't like secularism. They don't like liberal values. They don't like democratic values. They say that God ordained America as a Christian nation. And all of these forces have undermined America as a Christian nation. And it's their God-given duty, their God-ordained duty to take America back as God has directed them to, not only directed them to, but given them a mandate to and restore it to its Christian heritage. And this is the driving force. That is why they are so bent on doing this, they really believe that they have this spiritual duty to engage in this, what they see as a cosmic battle between good and evil. Now, a lot of the people in the, in the base really believe that, really believe that it's this cosmic battle between good and evil. There are a lot of political actors who are cynically using the knowledge that the base really believes this to manipulate them and really sort of control the way they think about our politics. I'm thinking about somebody like Mike Flynn, who goes around the country with uh, his Reawaken America tour and really drives home these kinds of messages that we're locked in this spiritual battle between good and evil. And it's your duty as a, as a Christian and as American to fight this, you know, these demonic forces. When framed that way as a cosmic battle between good and evil, it doesn't seem like democracy could be an overriding virtue. If anything, 
it gets in the way. Is that language starting to appear in in churches, in conversations about this cosmic battle and, and how to win if the majority of Americans don't want that? So they don't necessarily talk about democracy per se. And when they do, they tend to talk about, well, you know, we still go to the polls and cast ballots. So that's democracy, right? Like that's democracy at work. And when they do talk about elections, they continue to perpetuate the lie that our our elections are rife with fraud and that they can't be trusted. Of course, you know, when they win, the election isn't rife with fraud, right? But, you know, the evangelical Christians are real believers, not all of them, but a good segment of them are real believers in Trump's stolen election lie that we need to engage in processes to restore election integrity. In their mind, that would be processes that would get Republicans elected instead of Democrats. So you're seeing a lot more antagonism towards what they claim is the deep state, which they claim is a liberal infiltration of government against them. And the notion that elections need to be cleaned up or integrity needs to be restored to them. And you don't see a lot of discussion about January 6th and that terrorism and crimes were committed on January 6th. At best, they ignore it and don't talk about it. And at worst, some will talk about how the January 6th defendants, criminal defendants are, you know, political prisoners and wrongfully detained and wrongfully convicted. How central is Trump himself to this worldview? Because we've talked to a lot of people who've who've argued that he is just a symptom. But then I think about possible replacements, and there don't appear to be any. I don't think Trump could wear that mantle the same way. And rereading your book, it made me think about one of the distinguishing features of evangelical Protestantism, which is that personal relationship with Jesus, right? I grew up in a Protestant tradition. That was supposedly what set us apart from Catholicism. <laughs> I married into Catholicism, so I get it. But this idea of a personal relationship with the Savior, right? And the parallels to the MAGA faithful's personal relationship with Trump are just striking. When you see them interviewed, they talk about how Trump gets them at almost a soul deep level. And it makes me think that the people, and I often count myself in this category, who think he's just a symptom aren't getting the full picture. Right. He's a symptom, but he's unique in the sense that he has energized the base in a way that other Republicans have not and haven't since him, right? When George W. Bush ran for president, he was discussed in not quite the same way, a similar way that it was his Esther moment that, you know, God revealed him to America at this critical point in her history and that, you know, he was going to play some special role in rescuing America from dark forces, which, you know, after 9-11 became pretty obvious what they thought that those dark forces were. But Trump was different. I think Trump really energized, I think, a part of the base that 
perhaps had a loose relationship with evangelicalism, maybe weren't necessarily weekly churchgoers, but had a kind of cultural relationship with evangelicalism and were open to the idea that a sort of a heroic figure could come save America from the left, right? And I think he sort of broadened what the evangelical base was it, you know, more people began to identify as evangelicals during his presidency than before his presidency. So he kind of made evangelicalism cool to maybe some people who were not quite in the kind of core mainstream of evangelicalism. I think that as far as whether he was a symptom, yes, he was a symptom, but he's also sort of a unique figure to them. If Trump wasn't running for president again, and somebody like Ron DeSantis came along, would, would DeSantis fill that gap? That's not clear to me. You know, it's, I don't think he can overcome Trump. I don't think he can overtake Trump. Can he, would he be able to win their hearts if Trump wasn't in the picture? And I don't, I don't even know. I think that Trump had this kind of something that really spoke to their desire to stick it to the left and to stick it to the mainstream media. And I think all of his imitators, like DeSantis, sort of pale in comparison. Well, DeSantis is trying so hard, so hard <laughs> to replicate that mode to follow in in the wake of Trump, and it's it's just not genuine. I mean, if if Trump deserves credit for anything, it's being his authentic, awful self, <laughs> right? Uh, that that authenticity is something that his followers really seem to gravitate to, even though it's so full of lies and and brutality. I'm not saying anything new, except that I think you have to have an exceptional lack of self-awareness and humility and shame to pull that off. And that is exceedingly rare, even in Republican politics today, even DeSantis. He's, I think, too smart, too authentic, too authentically mimic Trump. Well, I think another thing sort of beyond rhetoric and that kind of gut emotional appeal that he has I think that Trump had a lot of relationships with figures in the, let's call it the prophetic or charismatic movement within evangelicalism. So this is a relatively speaking new religious movements within evangelicalism that put a strong emphasis on ideas of spiritual warfare, stronger emphasis than maybe mainstream evangelicalism, and put a very intense emphasis on prophecy and not just the personal relationship with Jesus, but your personal relationship with God, where you have a, like a direct relationship with God, where he like gives you revelations and you can speak them into existence. So some of the movements within this charis wider charismatic world are like the word of faith movement, prosperity gospel, the new apostolic reformation, which holds that, you know, there are modern day apostles and prophets that are, that God has sent out into the world to ensure the restoration of Christian America and take dominion over America. And because of Trump's personal relationships with many of these figures and his willingness to bring them into the mainstream conversation, to bring, invite them to the White House, to invite them to the stage at campaign rallies and so forth, he really energize this kind of these sub movements within evangelicalism that really focus on conspiracism and kind of detachment from reality ideas uh, and personal revelations and prophecies and all of that. And so I think that that has played 
a really big role in why the movement seems so out of touch with reality and conspiratorial in comparison to the past, because he has emboldened those figures and empowered them and thus empowered their followers to bring that kind of conspiratorial thinking into politics. How do you begin to construct a counter-argument to that? I mean, I understand how you expose it to people who are already able to see through the lies, but in trying to persuade, if you're arguing with people who believe God is talking to them in in this way, it just seems like an impossible hill to climb. And I'm thinking of leaders within the Republican Party, not just the the gullible rank and file, but people like Mark Meadows. And, and you talk about some of the texts he was sending. I'm trying to pull one of them here, but here it is. Actually, Congressman Rick Allen communicating with Meadows after January 6th that our nation is at war. It is a spiritual war at the highest level. Meadows replies to him, to Jenny Thomas, to others are equally rife with this eschatological language, this terrifying invocation of the end times. I used to ask the question, you know, do these people really believe that Trump is their savior or you know, can we trust that their cynicism is going to save us in the end? But no, a lot of them really believe in this apocalyptic coming battle. Absolutely. And I don't, I, I, to answer your first question, I don't know what the answer is in terms of reaching <laughs> people like that, right? Because if they believe, for example, you know, th- this conspiracism makes them very susceptible to like QAnon and QAnon adjacent conspiracy theories, conspiracy theories about the deep state, conspiracy theories about things like what they what they would consider woke that you know woke people are coming for your children, they're going to make them play sports with trans people or use the bathroom with trans like all these sort of like fear mongering. They're all kind of in this big cauldron of fear and grievance and anxiety, right? So it's all kind of connected together. And I mean, I don't know. The only comparison that I can come up with is the many people I've interviewed over the years who were in the thrall of a very authoritarian pastor and, you know, these, you know, big mega church pastors or even in some cases not so big. And a lot of them are quite, you know, dictatorial in the behavior they require of their congregants at church. Uh, many of them who adhere to the word of faith or prosperity gospel really are, you know, stealing money from their congregants, fleecing the flock, so to speak. And I've written a lot about these kinds of figures and talked to a lot of their former followers. And I thought about a lot of these people while I was covering Trump, because a lot of these people would say things like, well, you know, they're what, and this was many years before Trump, right? They would say, well, the local paper had a story about my pastor and about how he had used money that the congregation had given him to buy a private jet for himself, or that he had sexually abused congregants and said that it was told them that it was what God wanted, you know, stories like that. And a lot of these people would say, I just wouldn't read the story in the paper, or I just refused to believe it because it was in the paper. Like the paper is wrong. The newspaper is wrong. And that in some of these cases, something would finally happen and the fever would break. And then they would feel like, why did I believe that guy? Right? Like I'm free now from that kind of mind control, uh, but why did I believe him for so long? And they they spent a lot of time trying to deconstruct what led them to be in the thrall of somebody like that who was abusive. 
And I think it's a very similar thing. And Trump has been very adept at convincing them that anything that they read in the newspaper or see on CNN or what have you is fake news. You know, any criminal investigation of him is a witch hunt, right? And once you have people believing that you're going to save them from this imaginary woke mob, which is, you know, in their view, going to destroy America and endanger their children, then it's not that hard to then convince them that they shouldn't believe anything negative written or said about you. Uh, And so I don't, you know, I don't really know what it would take for the fever to break for people who are that in the thrall of Trump. But I do think that there are also a lot of Trump voters who aren't necessarily that much in the thrall, but also hate the left enough that they just like the idea of Trump sticking it to them. Green Chef has expanded their menu. Now choose from over 50 weekly menu and market items with the option to mix and match meals in the same box without changing your plan. Get everything you need at Green Market, our one-stop shop for quick breakfasts, brunch kits, wholesome lunches, and more you can easily add on to your weekly order. Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating well with meals that work for you, not the other way around. Celebrate summer with seasonal recipes featuring certified organic fruits and vegetables, organic cage-free eggs, and sustainably sourced seafood. Green Chef is the only meal kit that is both carbon and plastic offset. Green Chef offsets 100% of their delivery emissions to your door, as well as 100% of the plastic in every box. Plus, nearly all packaging materials are curbside recyclable in most areas in the U.S., Bring more flavor to your table this summer with Green Chef's delicious, nutritionist-approved recipes featuring certified organic fruits and vegetables and unique farm-fresh ingredients like tart cherries, truffle zest, and rainbow carrots. My absolute favorite is the spicy chicken and broccoli stir-fry delicious. Go to greenchef.com slash boats60 and use code boats60 to get 60% off plus free shipping. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. Did you know that your temperature at night can have one of the greatest impacts on your sleep quality? If you wake up too hot or too cold, I highly recommend you check out Miracle Made's bed sheets. Inspired by NASA, Miracle Made uses silver infused fabrics and makes temperature regulating bedding so you can sleep at the perfect temperature all night long. Using silver infused fabrics, originally inspired by NASA, Miracle-Made sheets are thermoregulating and designed to keep you at the perfect temperature all night long so you get better sleep every night. These sheets are infused with silver that prevents up to 99.7% of bacterial growth, leaving them cleaner and fresher three times longer than other sheets. Miracle sheets are luxuriously comfortable without the high price tag of other luxury brands, and they feel as nice if not nicer than bed sheets used by some five-star hotels. Stop sleeping on bacteria. Bacteria can clog your pores, causing breakouts. Sleep clean with Miracle. Go to trymiracle.com slash boats to try Miracle-made sheets today. And whether you're buying them for yourself or as a gift for a loved one, if you order today, you can save over 40%. And if you use our promo, Boats, at checkout, you'll get three free towels and save an extra 20%. Miracle is so confident in their product, it's backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you aren't 100% satisfied, you'll get a full refund. 
Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash boats and use the code to claim your free three-piece towel set and save 40% off. Thank you, Miracle Made, for sponsoring this episode. As I've gotten older, I have noticed that on the occasions when I have an alcoholic drink, I don't bounce back the next morning the way I did when I was younger until I discovered Z-Biotics. Z-Biotics pre-alcohol probiotic is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhDs to tackle mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. It's designed to work like your liver, but in your gut where you need it most. Just remember to drink Zbiotics before drinking alcohol, drink responsibly, and get a good night's sleep to feel your best the next day. The first time I tried Zbiotics was at a wedding. As instructed, I drank a bottle of Zbiotics before any alcohol and was amazed at how I felt the next day. Every time I have a Zbiotics before drinking, it makes such a difference the next day. Even after drinks the night before, I know I'll be able to get back to my daily routine like working out or mowing a lawn. Give Zbiotics a try for yourself. Go to zbiotics.com/boats to get 15% off your first order when you use boats at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with a 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com/boats and use the code boats at checkout for 15% off. Thank you Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode. Hi, Burn the Boats fans. I want to take a quick break to talk about our sponsor for today's show, Roan. Men's closets are long overdue for a radical reinvention, and Roan has stepped up to the challenge. Roan's commuter collection represents the most comfortable, breathable, and flexible clothes I've ever found. Roan makes it so easy to get ready for any occasion. The commuter collection offers the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips, and polos. Roan's comfortable four-way stretch fabric provides breathability and flexibility that leaves you free to enjoy whatever life throws your way, from your commute to work to weekends at the kids' ballgames. Looking good is easy with Roan's wrinkle-release technology, which makes wrinkles magically disappear, seriously, as you wear the products. It's really that easy. I don't have time between work and family and everything in between to worry about dry cleaning or ironing with Roan, I don't have to. I just wear and go. And I feel great doing it. Even after a long day, Roan feels clean and new and just as comfortable as the moment I put it on. You got to try it out. Head to roan.com slash boats and use promo code boats to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order when you had to R-H-O-N-E dot com slash boats and use code boats. Trust me, Roan makes choosing what to wear not just easy, but classy and comfortable. That's Roan.com slash boats. When talking to these former followers of religious leaders, did you come across any common themes in in the some things, as you put it, that finally pulled them out of that? I mean, is there anything we can learn from that in in coming up with ways to challenge the MAGA faithful and, and what it might take to save that? Right. 
Well, one woman I'm thinking of finally realized that the first fruits doctrine that her pastor preached, which was that you have to tithe 10% to your church and that you have to give your first fruits. That is that you tithe the 10% before you pay your rent, before you pay your mortgage, before you pay your car payments. And this was a woman who was a single mom. She was really, really struggling financially, really struggling financially. And she really believed this first fruit stuff and was, you know, tithing to her pastor before she was paying her rent until finally that became an financially unsustainable thing. And that was what really finally put her over the edge. And I think about that with regard to like, I don't know if you're on the Trump campaign email list, but anybody who is, you just, it's like you are bombarded constantly with these very scammy offers. Oh, you're, you know, your, your gift is waiting for you, or you have to donate so that I can fight Alvin Bragg, or you have to donate so I can fight the deep state. And I think that there are probably a lot of people giving Trump money, small amounts to him, but it's probably a large amount relative to their income. His digital fundraising strategy has crossed a line that I don't think I've ever seen in political fundraising, which not long ago was to call donors who had lapsed traitors. I don't know if you remember that email, but it Mm -hmm. was astonishing Mm -hmm. to me. And it was, again, reminiscent of this, this first fruits appeal. I haven't heard it put that way, but you see this all all the time uh, from the pulpit of televangelists who exactly. say, you know, if you haven't given, you're you're turning your back on God. The same mm-hmm. language of turning your back on Trump. Exactly. And you know that, quote unquote, spiritual advisor is Paul, the televangelist Paula White, who is, you know, uh, preaches that same kind of theology. Yeah. You have referred to his presidency as the televangelist presidency. I think we understand what you mean, but it's just such a great phrase. Can you build on it? Well, televangelists preach what, you know, we've, I've mentioned just now the word of faith or prosperity gospel, which basically says that God will bless you if you give money to your preacher, your pastor, your televangelist. God will reward you with a thousandfold return on your investment. So there's sort of like a, there's a carrot and a stick. The carrot is that God will reward you with a thousandfold return on your investment. And the stick is that God doesn't bless people who don't give money like that to their pastor. And of course, the televangelists use this money not to, you know, Sometimes they use it to build a bigger church, but most of the time they use it to buy a private jet, to buy very luxury cars, to buy themselves various mansions and other real estate. They use it for self-enrichment. And a lot of the followers of this theology do not have a problem because they believe that that is evidence of God's favor on their pastor. And therefore, they are giving to a pastor who is very much rewarded by God for his faithfulness and that that will somehow trickle down to them because they're helping to advance that faithfulness and that financial reward for the pastor and that will trickle down to them as well. So the notion that 
Trump flew around in a public jet or had this gold gilded penthouse in New York. These were not problematic ideas for a follower of the prosperity gospel. That was evidence that God of God's favor on him and that he and that he, his wealth is not evidence of of grift or fraud, but evidence of a reward from God. It's really a brilliant bit of salesmanship because it diverts any possible criticism. I, I, I mean, I, get, I guess that mm-hmm. mode of evangelical Christianity really is all about salesmanship. If you can sell the afterlife and get people to pay that much for it and buy mansions with it, you can sell anything. You can sell a presidential announcement on a golden escalator. Exactly. Exactly. And he was a student of that. What do you mean he was a student of of that? Like just in general and understanding how media operated or did he actually? He had seen Paula White on TV in the mid 2000s. This is the story that multiple people have told to me, multiple people have told in public that he was in Florida and he was channel surfing. Her church was based in Florida and he happened upon her television show and was, you know, really liked her message, had his secretary invite her to Trump Tower to meet him in New York. And then the rest was sort of history. They became very good friends. When he became president, she became his quote-unquote, or during his campaign, she was his quote-unquote spiritual advisor. She was an an advisor to his office of faith-based initiatives. And uh, they're very close. And He also invited many other televangelists and promoters of the prosperity gospel into his inner circle along with White. And it's not like these figures were not deemed important in Republican politics before. They were, and they were mostly sought after by Republican politicians for their vast audiences, right? So if you could get a little endorsement from a televangelist with a huge audience that could go a long way. But none of them cultivated them and befriended them and brought them inside in the way that Trump did. And he had clearly, you know, sort of studied how they appealed to the base. And I often would watch Trump campaign rallies and feel like the narratives and cadence of and the trajectory of the narrative of his campaign rallies really sort of felt like being in a megachurch to me. It really felt like the way a lot of them, you know, it sort of starts out slow, it rises to a crescendo, there's a list of grievances, but ultimately you prevail and then everybody feels really good and they cheer you and everybody goes home. I think Paula White is is very good at that, as are a number of other spiritual advisors to Trump. But I think we're we're glossing over just how awful some of them are as people. You go into it in, in some detail in your book, but Paula White, if memory serves, you know, once prayed for demon uh, fetuses to miscarry. I, I mean, it's just some some really mean stuff. Yeah, I mean, they that's what I'm talking about. Like when they get into this mode of like claiming that they're getting a prophecy or they're speaking in tongues or they're, you know, doing something and then they just sort of go on this riff and it's often like just very either cruel or, you know, d- detached from reality or just, you know, out of touch. And this is the sort of stuff that I'm talking about that Trump really sort of brought more into the mainstream and enabled. I think that, you know, while... Both Bush's sort of 
dabbled in reaching out to the audiences of televangelists. I think, you know, they very clearly did, um, but they did not embrace them in the way that Trump did. And I think one of the things that shows just how much the Republican Party has changed in that regard, with regard to televangelists. In the mid-2000s, Chuck Grassley, who was at the time the ranking member of the Senate Finance Committee, launched an investigation into the financial practices of six televangelists, including Paula White. And they basically found that, you know, they had misused tax-exempt donations to enrich themselves. But nothing really came of it because of a lot of pushback from the evangelical world claiming that this was an you know, infringement on religious freedom and that it was not fair and, you know, et cetera. And so it kind of fell by the wayside. But, you know, there was a time when there were top officials in the Republican Party who had a problem with churches with a tax exemption using tax exempt donations to buy private jets and so forth. But now nobody talks about nobody in the Republican Party would dare talk about that anymore. It would be easy to assume that these churches are insulated voting blocks, that they are they are aging, they are losing less and less influence. But We've had some really eye-opening conversations with people like Angela Denker and, and Kristen Dumay, and I, I know Ann Nelson is, is one of your favorites, about just how strategic their outreach is, just how thoughtful and strategic their politics are. And they have created a growing community with its its tentacles into everything. And there are plenty of young people who are growing up in that. Can you talk about the Jericho generation and and the fact that, you know, as much faith as we put in young people to drive change, that these churches still have a lot of influence as well? They have a lot of influence, particularly in the Republican Party. And I think that that is the issue, right? So while white evangelicals are a shrinking part of the population as a whole, they retain this very strong unbreakable hold in the Republican Party. And as far as young people go, I think the general public maybe doesn't fully grasp the breadth and depth of the ways in which young people are drawn in and kept in the movement. So, you know, starting with homeschooling and Christian schooling, but also there's, you know, several hundred Christian colleges and universities where students have to adhere to very strict honor codes and behavior codes that they wouldn't at a secular university. And a lot of them come out of there rejecting those codes and even rejecting their evangelicalism. But these schools still exist. They have very sort of intense training grounds for getting involved in politics, um, for evangelical Christian law students to uh, become Christian lawyers and to advance the cause of what they would say religious freedom in the legal profession. And so there are just so many ways beyond politics and beyond religion itself or religious institutions itself that they perpetuate these ideas and draw young people in despite more diverse opportunities to, you know, not be evangelical that are available to young people. And so I think that periodically there's polling data that they're, you know, evangelical, you know, young, among young people, evangelicalism is, evangelicalism is not as popular. 
The problem is that because of their hold on the Republican Party and because of the asymmetry of our national politics, meaning the Senate and the Electoral College, they play this outsized role in our politics. And they play an outsized role in the law because of the resulting, because of the Senate and the Electoral College, Republicans have stacked the Supreme Court with sympathetic Supreme Court justices. So... You know, it's not enough to just look at the demographics. You have to look at the ways in which they have used money and political power and now legal power to get such a strong foothold in our politics and the law. Well, the the stacking of the Supreme Court and that subversive anti-democratic trend is, is one piece of it. The other piece of it is just how long they have been planning. I mean, the Dobbs decision was a 50 year game plan. When I think about Mm -hmm. young people in this movement, I mean, they have been, (laughs) I'm going to use a loaded word, they have been grooming young people to arise to these positions of power since, you know, the Federalist Society was formed. Since before that, yes. I think that evangelicals in particular think about these issues in what they would call a multi-generational way. So they're not just thinking about the next election cycle, even though they are thinking about the next election cycle. They're also thinking about the longer term. So when they set out to overturn Roe one day, they knew that it wouldn't happen tomorrow. And they went on this multifaceted campaign to make abortion illegal. So it wasn't just the courts, although it was the courts, it was also figuring out ways to get like-minded legislators elected in state legislatures so they could pass abortion bans. And they very carefully figured out ways to slowly chip away at abortion rights in the states. You know, it started with some of these, you know, parental consent laws or laws restricting how abortion, you know, that abortion clinics had to have all of these features like a hospital, trap laws. You know, and it just went on and on and on, right, until until they overturned Roe. Now that we have Dobbs, now they're figuring out ways to make it happen in the states and maybe at the national level to make it crime. And so they've been playing this game. They're not just happy for to have the Dobbs decision. They want every state in the union to make abortion a crime. And if they can't get that done in blue states, then they're going to try to get a national abortion ban, right? So like, there's always another layer that they're aiming for. And this is exactly their strategy with LGBTQ rights. I mean, the assault on trans rights in particular is just a piece of it. They aim to treat Obergefell just like they treated Roe, that one day they will overturn it. And in the meantime, they'll just make the lives of LGBTQ people utterly miserable until that happens. Well, we had Jim Obergefell on on the show, just such a an amazing, groundbreaking person. And we talked about Dobbs and how that debate is so perfectly revelatory because it describes a linear continuum. And the Republicans got exactly what they wanted, and we can see them walking back from 20 to 12 weeks, to 10, to six, to outright bans in a way that something nonlinear would be a little tougher to, to recognize. But you see that being mapped onto the assault against LGBTQ plus rights, trans rights. And it begs the question, where do they stop? 
Well, they are so past the point of the autopsy that they did when Obama got elected, right? Thinking like, well, maybe we should try to appeal to non-white voters and maybe we should focus less on the quote unquote social issues. I mean, like they've just, they've got a bullet bill past that, right? Like they've just like gone way beyond that and there's no looking back. You know, I think that until they just lose elections very badly and can no longer have the the desire to continue to press election fraud claims like someone like Carrie Lake is doing in Arizona, even though she keeps losing her court fights. I think that they're just going to keep doing it. They are, I think that they are high on their own supply and they have pretty good reason to be in light of what the Supreme Court has done and will continue to do and their hold on many state legislatures. And I think also, you know, you see it with the with the Pristone case where the Fifth Circuit was extremely sympathetic to them. And the, the thrust of the, uh, the judge's questioning was that they were upset that people had been unkind to the district court judge. So I think that it'll take a while for that fever to break. And I think no one should underestimate what they're willing to do to accomplish what they're setting out to accomplish. Well, that sets up the dangerous possibility of continued subversion of the, the democratic will. The systems are already in place. The undemocratic Senate, the Supreme Court, which, you know, I believe six of the nine were appointed by presidents who had a minority of, of the popular vote. If the Republican Party realizes that it can maintain power without the majority of the public supporting it, is that a mode that they'll be able to continue? Can we out-organize voter suppression and intimidation? Right. I actually have some, I think we've seen signs of hope of that in some of these off-year elections or special elections like the one in uh, Wisconsin, the Supreme Court election in Wisconsin. And some other off-year votes that seem to really indicate that a majority of voters are unhappy with the abortion situation in particular. And I don't think that it will only, like, I think voters are not, I I don't believe the idea that voters are single-issue voters. I think there's a lot of things that factor into it. But I think with the abortion stuff, I think the Republicans have just gone so far and you read these stories of women dying of sepsis or, or you know, these horrible situations where women can't get a DNC or they have a miscarriage and their doctor is afraid of going to jail. And, you know, it's just like these horrific, horrific stories. And I think everybody knows a woman. They're either, they either are a woman or they know a woman and love a woman. And so I think that, I think hopefully the backlash to that abortion extremism will continue to make itself seen at the polls. Hopefully. And I I hope that that backlash and that sympathy for this this group extends to other marginalized groups that are next on the target list. Absolutely. Because you're damned well sure that there are other groups in line to be targeted by the zealots. Yeah. Well, it's been... Wonderful having you, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. One last 
question for you because this young man gives me incredible hope. Andrew Hartzler, I don't know if you you know him, but uh, he called out his aunt for her homophobic rant. Uh, and we had him on the show to talk about what it was like being a gay kid at Oral Roberts University, as evangelical as they come. And he found a way to fight back. Yep. I know Andrew because I wrote a story about him even before he uh, called out his aunt, former representative Vicki Hartzler. Yeah. So I know Andrew well, and uh, he is, he has an incredible story of perseverance. I mean, he, his uh, childhood, he had a very intense experience with growing up gay in this very, very anti-gay, very austerely anti-gay environment. And that he has become an LGBTQ rights activist is really kind of incredible. Well, thanks again. We'd love to have you back. Absolutely. Anytime. Thanks, Ken. Thanks again to Sarah for joining me. Make sure to check out her book, Unholy. The link is in the show description. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Ruloffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.